Chapter 2. A Disciple of Aviation The Canes had come to California some three years previous because of Mr. Canes' impaired health. He had been the manager of an important manufacturing company in the East, on a large salary for many years, and his family had lived royally, and his children had been given the best education that money could procure. Orissa attended a famous girls' school, and Stephen went to college. But suddenly the father's health broke, and his physicians offered no help for his life unless he at once migrated to a sunny clime where he might be always in the open air. He came to California and invested all his savings, not a great deal, in the Orange Ranch. Three months later he died, leaving his blind wife and two children without any financial resources except what might be gleaned from the ranch. Fortunately, the boy, Stephen, had just finished his engineering course at Cornell and was equipped, theoretically at least, to begin a career with one of the best-paying professions known to modern times. Mechanical to his fingertips, Stephen Kane had eagerly absorbed every bit of information placed before him and had been graduated so well that a fine position was offered him in New York with opportunity for rapid advancement. Mr. Kane's death prevented the young man from accepting this desirable offer, however. He was obliged to go to Los Angeles to care for his mother and sister. It was a difficult situation for an inexperienced boy to face, but he attacked the problem with the same courage that had enabled him to conquer Euclid and Calculus at school, and in the end arranged his father's affairs fairly well. The oranges from the ranch would give them a net income of about $2,000 a year, which was far from meaning poverty, although much less than the family expenditures had previously been. There were other fruits on the place, an ample vegetable garden, and a flock of chickens, so the Canes believed they would live very comfortably on their income. In addition to this, Stephen could earn a salary as a mechanical engineer, or at least he believed he could. He found, however, after many unsuccessful attempts, that his professional field was amply covered by experienced men, and as a temporary makeshift, he was finally driven to accept a position in an automobile repair shop. It's an awful come-down, Riz, he said to Orissa, his confidant, but I can't afford to loaf any longer, you know, and the pay is almost as much as a young engineer gets to start with so I'll tackle it and keep my eye open for something better. While Stephen was employed in this repair shop, a famous aviator named Willard came to town with his aeroplane and met with an accident that badly disabled his machine. Although aviators have marked Southern California as their chosen field from the beginning because one may fly there all winter, there was not a place in the city where a specialty was made of repairing airships. Naturally, Mr. Willard sought an automobile repair shop as the one place that was most liable to supply his needs. The manager shook his head. We know nothing about biplanes, he confessed. Pardon me, sir, said Stephen King, who was present. I know something about airships, and I'm sure I can repair Mr. Willard's if you'll let me take the job. The aviator turned to him gratefully. Thank you, he said. I'll put my machine in your hands. What experience have you had with biplanes of this type? 
Not at all, was the answer. But I'm sure you will not find an experienced airship man in this city. I've studied the devices, though, ever since Montgomery made his first flights. And as we have all the requisite tools and machinery here, I'm sure, with your assistance and direction, I can readily put your machine back into perfect condition. He did, performing the work excellently. Before long, another biplane needed repairs, and Stephen was recommended by Mr. Willard. Later, a Curtis machine came under Steve's hands, and then an Antoinette monoplane. The manager raised the young fellow's salary, proud that he had a man competent enough to repair these newfangled inventions which were creating such a stir throughout the country. Stephen Kane might have continued to follow the calling of an expert aeroplane doctor with marked success had he been an ordinary young mechanic, but the air castles he had built at college were not dissipated as yet, and aside from possessing decided talent as a workman, Steve had an inventive genius that promised great things for his future. By the time he had taken a half-dozen different airplanes apart and repaired them, he had a thorough knowledge of their construction and requirements, and the best of them seemed to him wholly inadequate for the purpose with which they were planned. The fact is, Riss, he said to Orissa one evening, after he'd been poring over a book on air currents, the airships of today are all experimental and chock-full of mistakes. No two are anywhere near alike, and each man thinks he has the only correct mechanism. But they fly, answered the girl who was keenly interested in the subject of aviation, and had twice been down to the shop to examine the aeroplanes that Steve was repairing. So they do, they fly after a fashion, admitted the young man, which fully proves the thing can be accomplished. But present machines are all too complicated, and the planes seem to have been shaped by guesswork rather than common sense. They fuss with motors and propellers and ignore the sustaining mechanism which is the most vital principle of all. Some day we shall see the sky full of successful aviators, and flying will be as common as automobiling is now. But when the time comes, we shall laugh at the crude devices they brag of today. That may be true, returned the girl thoughtfully. But isn't it also true of every great invention, that the first models are imperfect? Quite true, he said. I can make a better biplane than any I have seen, but I admit that I had not seen the advantage of seeing any I might have blundered, as all the rest seem to have done. Why don't you make one, Steve? asked Orissa impulsively. If aviation is going to become general, the man who builds the best airplane will make his fortune. Steve flushed and rose to tramp up and down the room before he answered. Then he stopped before his sister and said, in a low, intense voice. I really want to make one, Orissa. The idea has taken possession of my thoughts, until it has almost driven me crazy. I can make a machine that will fly better and be more safe and practical than either the Wright or Curtis machines. But the thing is impossible. We don't have the money. Orissa sat staring at the rug for a long time. Finally, she asked, How much money would it take, Steve? He hesitated. I don't know. I've never figured it out. But what's the use? There is use in everything, declared his sister. Get to work and figure it out. Find out how much you need, 
and then we'll see if we can manage it. He gazed at her as if bewildered. Then he turned and left the room without a word. A few evenings later, he handed her an estimate. I think it could be done for $3,000, he remarked, which means, of course, it can't be done at all. Orissa took the paper without reply and pondered over it for several days. She was only 17, but she had inherited her father's clear, business-grasping mind, and she would have been an essentially practical girl had not her youth and inexperience lent her some illusions that time would dissipate. Stephen posed as the head of the family, but Orissa really directed its finances poor Mrs. Kane being so helpless that her children never depended upon her for counsel, but on the contrary, kept all business matters from her, lest she worry over them. The one maid employed in the bungalow served Mrs. Kane almost exclusively, while Larissa always had devoted much time to her mother, who had been stricken blind at the time of her daughter's birth. One evening, when brother and sister were in the garden together, the girl said, I believe I have discovered a plan that will permit you to build your airship. What is it to be, Steve, a biplane or a monoplane? Let me hear your plan, was his eager reply. Well, I've been to see Mr. Wentworth, and he will advance us 1500 on our orange crop by discounting the price 10%. He came and looked at the trees and said they were safe to pay us at least $2,300 next February. But, Orissa, how could we live with our income cut down that way, to a mere seven or $800? I'm going to work, she said quietly. I'm tired of doing nothing but dig around the garden and cook. Mama doesn't need me, at least during the day, so I'm going into business. Steve smiled. You work, Orissa? What on earth could you do? I'll find something to do, and my salary, added to yours, will make up for the loss of the orange money. We have to economize, of course, but when we've such a big deal on hand, one that will make our fortune, we can put up with a few temporary discomforts. But 1500 won't build the thing, that's certain, he said with a sigh. I've got to construct an entirely new motor, engine and all and some original propellers and elevators, and the patterns and casting for these will be expensive. Well, by the time the 1500 is gone, she replied, you will know exactly how much more money is needed, and we will mortgage the place for that amount. Rubbish, cried Stephen impatiently. I won't listen an instant to such a wild plan. Suppose I fail. Oh, if you're going to fail, we won't undertake it said his sister. You claimed you could make a better airship than the Curtis or the Wright, either one of which is worth a fortune, and I believe you. If you were only joking, Steve, we won't talk about it any more. I wasn't joking or bragging either. You know that, Orissa. I'm pretty sure of my idea, but it's untried. I've bought all the books on aviation I can find and I've been reading of Professor Montgomery's discovery of the laws of air currents and his theories concerning them. They're only primers, though, sis, for the science of aviation is as yet unwritten. That is why I cannot speak with perfect assurance. 
But the more I look into the thing, the more positive I am that I've hit upon the right idea of aerial navigation. What's your idea? she asked. To simplify the construction of the craft, the present devices are all too complicated and keep the aviator too busy while he's in the air. In other words, he's all up in the air while he's up in the air, she remarked. Precisely. Most of his time is required to maintain a lateral balance so as not to tip over or lose control. I'm to have a simpler construction, an automatic balance, and a plane only large enough to support the machinery and the aviator. If you can manage that, we're not taking any chances, said Orissa. He sat with furrowed brow, thinking deeply. Finally, he said in a decisive way, Nothing is certain until it is accomplished. I won't take the risk of making you and your mother paupers. Please don't speak of this again, Riss. Arissa didn't, but Steve did about a month later. A great aviation meeting had been arranged at Dominguez Field near L.A. and only a few miles from their home. The event, which was destined to be an epoch in the history of aviation, brought many famous aviators to the city with their machines, among them a Frenchman named Pollon, with whom Stephen had soon become acquainted. An examination of Pollon's machine, a foreman of the latest type, which had already performed marvels, served to convince the boy that his own ideas were not only practical, but destined soon to be discovered and applied by somebody else, if he himself failed to take advantage of the time and the opportunity to utilize them. With that argument to calm any misgivings that he might perhaps fail, coupled with an eagerness to build his invention, Steve went to Orissa one day and said, All right, sis, I'm going to undertake the thing. Can you still get Mr. Wentworth to advance the money? I think so, she replied. Then get it, and I'll start work at once. The drawings are already complete, and he showed them to her, neatly traced in comprehensive detail. Most people would have been bewildered by the technicalities and passed them by with a glance, but Orissa understood how important for them this venture was destined to be, so she sat down and studied the designs minutely, making her brother explain anything she found the least puzzling. By this time, the girl had made herself familiar with the latest modern improvements in airplanes and had personally examined several of the best devices. So she was able to catch the true value of Stephen's idea and immediately became as enthusiastic as he was. The money was raised and placed by Stephen in a bank where he could draw upon it as needed. Mrs. Kane concurred mildly in the plans when they were explained to her being accustomed to lean on Orissa and Stephen, and to accept their judgment without protest. Aviation was all Greek to the poor woman, and she did not bother her head trying to understand why people wanted to fly, or how they might accomplish such a desire.